0: Thank you for listening to the Well-Read Christian Podcast. I'm Mark Stanley, your host. And with our next series, we are going to look at Victor E. Frankel, a psychologist from Austria who survived the Holocaust and changed the world with his book, Man's Search for Meaning. This work is powerful in its demonstration that even in the most horrific situations, you have the freedom and responsibility to rise above your circumstances and find meaning in life despite its pain. No matter what else is taken from you, you will always have the freedom to respond to your situation how you wish. And when we accept the responsibility of living well in the face of suffering and even death, we discover our inner capacity for meaning and virtue. Man's Search for Meaning has sold more than 12 million copies and been translated into 24 languages. A survey by the Library of Congress found it in the top 10 of, quote, books that changed your life, end quote. William Winsdale writes, Man's search for meaning has inspired religious and philosophical thinkers, mental health professionals, teachers, students, and general readers from all walks of life. It is routinely assigned to college, graduate, and high school students in psychology, philosophy, history, literature, Holocaust studies, religion, and theology. Dr. Frankel was once asked what he thought about the overwhelming popularity of his book, and he said, I do not at all see in the bestseller status of my book an achievement and accomplishment on my part but rather an expression of the misery of our time. If hundreds of thousands of people reach out for a book whose very title promises to deal with the question of a meaning to life, it must be a question that burns under their fingernails, end quote. Today on the podcast, we're going to talk about Frankl's ideas about how to find meaning in life, even when you are facing certain death. We'll also talk about his experiences in the concentration camp, as well as observations and conclusions that he made while there. Next time, we'll focus on his psychological paradigm, the system he used in order to understand depression, the meaning to life, suicide, and how human beings deal with suffering. I've been looking forward to this series of the podcast since before the first episode aired. And I must say, if there has ever been a book that we have discussed on this podcast that is accessible to everyone, this is it. The book is 150 pages, you can buy it for $9 on Amazon, and it'll be at your door tomorrow. This book is incredibly impactful. It can change the way you look at all suffering and temptation throughout life, as well as give you a mechanism by which to find significance in all of your actions. I'm going to give it my best shot, but I promise there is so much more that I wish I could talk about, but instead will leave you to read for yourself. Unfortunately, if I was able to talk about everything that I was wanting to talk about from this work, I would end up just reading you the audiobook. So before we begin, I would like to remind you of how helpful it is for us when you like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe to YouTube. If you've already done those things, you can ascend to the next level of supporter by leaving a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and recommending our podcast and blog to others on Facebook. If you express your thoughts about the podcast, the tech giant algorithms generate more traffic and it can help our podcast grow. If you've benefited from WellRead Christian or believe in our mission, please consider making a tax-deductible donation to support our work on our website, wellreadchristian.com. You will also find detailed quotes from authors we talk about, including Viktor Frankl, sources on music and art pieces we use, articles written by myself and others, and more information about our goals and beliefs, available free of charge. These are tough times for all of us, and if your contribution would cause any amount of financial pressure, please do not even consider it. But for those who are willing and able to give, it is because of your gift that the podcast can continue and grow. So thank you. Viktor Frankl was born in 1905 in Vienna, Austria. Even from a young age, he knew he wanted to become a doctor and was very interested in questions about the meaning of life. Questions like, why is there something instead of nothing? What is the purpose of human beings? Why do I exist and how can I find fulfillment and happiness? Frankel was immersed in philosophy, psychology, and psychoanalysis, even from high school. He had personal correspondence with Sigmund Freud, who recognized his potential and even got his first paper published at 16. Frankel did become a psychiatrist under the influence of Freud and discovered his talent for diagnosing psychological problems as well as understanding people's motives. He ended up disagreeing profoundly with Freud, who believed the fundamental human motivation is pleasure. Frankel maintained that the fundamental human motivation is actually purpose or fulfillment, a life of significance and meaning, and he believed that people were even willing to bear tremendous suffering if it were for a worthy goal. By 1939, the Germans had already annexed Austria, and most of the world was plunged into war. German anti-Semitism was raging, the death camps were filling, and Frankel was the head of the neurology department in the Jewish hospital of Rothschild in Vienna. His position there Gave him, along with his wife and parents, some protection from the threat of deportation. But once the National Socialist government closed the hospital, Frankel knew that him and his family were in grave danger. Thus begins the story in Part One of Frankel's book, Man's Search for Meaning. Frankel recalls getting a letter from the American consulate in Vienna. Enclosed was an invitation to pick up an immigration visa. This was before the United States had entered the war. In the U.S., Victor would have the freedom to finish his book on his revolutionary new methods of therapy. He could live in safety and wait out the Nazi regime, but he would have to leave behind his parents. They, of course, encouraged him heartily to go, but Victor was torn. Does he bear no responsibility to stay with his parents, who would eventually be deported to a concentration camp, or even worse, to the all-but-confirmed rumors of a so-called extermination camp? Frankel was seriously torn not knowing whether his obligations to stay outweighed the opportunity of escape. Could he really leave his parents behind, knowing that it might be the last he ever sees of them? A long time passed while he deliberated. One day, he noticed a large fragment of marble on a table in his parents' house. When he asked what it was, his father told him that he had found it on the site where the National Socialists had burned down the largest Vietnamese synagogue. His father had visited the wreckage, and spotted a piece of the marble tablets on which the Ten Commandments were inscribed. On the marble fragment, which he had saved, only a single Hebrew letter was preserved, which stood for one of the commandments. Victor eagerly asked, well, which commandment was it? The commandment? Honor thy father and mother, that thy days may be long upon the land. At that moment, Victor Frankl decided to stay in Austria and let the American immigration visa lapse. It did not take long before soldiers were at their front door The Frankel family was separated and taken to different camps. Victor was with a friend at the time, and he would never speak to his pregnant wife again. They were packed into cattle cars with a single suitcase and the clothes on their back. The train whistle screamed, giving voice to the anguish of the passengers. After traveling for some time, someone shrieked. Look! A sign! Auschwitz! Everyone's heart skipped a beat. The reports were true. Gas chambers, crematoriums, mass shootings. The prisoners stumbled out of the rail car, exhausted and dirty from their journey, and formed a line as men in pristine uniforms with loaded machine guns barked orders with hoarse throats. An, N- an SS officer went down the line, gesturing to the left or to the right for each prisoner. Someone behind him whispered that the left meant a gas chamber and the right was a work camp. Most were pointed to the left. As the officer drew closer, Frankel tried to straighten his posture and appear intelligent. The German looked him over, appeared to pause, and put both his hands on Victor's shoulders. He slowly turned him to the right, and Victor rushed off. The rest were stripped of all their clothing and shaved. At that moment, they knew that for the rest of their lives, all they would own was their naked existence. Victor quickly asked what happened to his colleague and friend, who he had been captured alongside and sent to the camp with. Another prisoner answered, and I am quoting now, quote, ''Was he sent to the left side?'' ''Yes,'' I replied. ''Then you can see him there.'' ''Where?'' A hand pointed to the chimney a few hundred yards off, which was sending a column of flame up into the grey sky of Poland. It dissolved into a sinister cloud of smoke. ''That's where your friend is, floating up to heaven,'' was the answer. ''But I still did not understand until the truth was explained to me in plain words.'' Quote. The vast majority of the transport, about ninety percent of those passengers, were gassed or incinerated before the evening. That night, the prisoners were gathered in their huts and free to speak their mind. Prisoners who had been there for a long time educated the newcomers. As soon as you were too weak to work, you would be killed. In order to survive, you have to be productive at your hard labor, someone explained. There are selections each morning as to who will work and who will die. You must look strong and fit for work each morning. Shave, even if you need a shred of glass to do it. None of you have anything to fear tomorrow, except for you the man pointed at victor frankl i hope you don't mind me telling you frankly victor grinned sheepishly and writes that he is convinced that anyone in his place would have done the same thing the following years would be consumed by starvation 15-hour workdays and hard labor sickness the smell of death beatings insults sleepless nights frozen winters fleas and rats obviously the thought of suicide weighed heavy on the prisoners Many people did run out and touch the electrified wire which surrounded the compound. That was the most common method of suicide, but there were others too. Any description of the horrors of Auschwitz make perfectly clear why some would wish to kill themselves. Frankl puts it well when he says, I shall never forget how I was roused one night by the groans of a fellow prisoner who threw himself about in his sleep, obviously having a horrible nightmare. Since I had always been especially sorry for people who suffered from fearful dreams or were delirious, I wanted to wake the poor man up. Suddenly, I drew back the hand which was ready to shake him, frightened at the thing I was about to do. At that moment, I became intensely conscious of the fact that no dream, no matter how horrible, could be as bad as the reality of the camp which surrounded us, and to which I was about to recall him." But what Frankl says next about suicide is incredible, and it has application for everyone, far beyond the concentration camps. The fact that it came from someone in a concentration camp, where the survival rate was roughly 1 in 20, where death was possible at any second, rendering all your struggles through the years apparently worthless, and where the future was only bleak and terrible constantly, merely lends credibility to the statement. Frankl says this, Woe to him who saw no more sense in his life, no aim, no purpose, and therefore no point in carrying on. He was soon lost. The typical reply with which such a man rejected all encouraging arguments was, I have nothing to expect from life anymore. What sort of answer can one give to that? What was really needed was a fundamental change in our attitude towards life. We had to learn ourselves, and furthermore, we had to teach the despairing men that it did not really matter what we expected from life, but rather what life expected from us we needed to stop asking about the meaning of life and instead to think of ourselves as those who were being questioned by life, daily, hourly. Our answer must consist not in talk and meditation, but in right action and in right conduct. Life ultimately means taking the responsibility to find the right answer to its problems and to fulfill the tasks which it constantly sets for each individual, end quote. Frankl realized that instead of framing the question of meaning as one that you ask of life, In reality, it's a question that life asks of you. He decided for himself, resolutely, that he would say yes to life, despite everything. If fate would steer his path to survival, he must see it through. And the reason that he says we have the responsibility to say yes to life, as we will discover, is that even though we have absolutely no control over our external circumstances, we will always have the freedom of choice to choose inwardly whether things done to us will break us or whether we will overcome them and make them our unique and indestructible achievements as a pillar of triumph for all time. Quote, when a man finds that it is his destiny to suffer, he will have to accept his suffering as his task, his single and unique task. He will have to acknowledge the fact that even in suffering he is unique and alone in the universe. No one can relieve him of his suffering or suffer in his place. His unique opportunity lies in the way in which he bears his burden. For us, as prisoners, these thoughts were not speculations far removed from reality. They were the only thoughts that could be of help to us. They kept us from despair, even when there seemed to be no chance of coming out of it alive. Long ago, we had passed the stage of asking what was the meaning of life, a naive query which understands life as the attaining of some aim through the active creation of something of value. For us, the meaning of life embraced the wider cycles of life and death, of suffering, and of dying. Once the meaning of suffering had been revealed to us, we refused to minimize or alleviate the camp's tortures by ignoring them or harboring false illusions and entertaining artificial optimism. Suffering had become a task on which we did not want to turn our backs. We had realized its hidden opportunities for achievement, the opportunities which caused the poet Rilke to write how much suffering there is to get through, Rilke spoke of getting through suffering, as others would talk of getting through work. There was plenty of suffering for us to get through. Therefore, it was necessary to face up to the full amount of suffering, trying to keep moments of weakness and furtive tears to a minimum. But there was no need to be ashamed of tears, for tears bore witness that a man had the greatness of courage, the courage to suffer, quote. What Frankel realized is the same thing that Alexander Solzhenitsyn realized in the prison camps of the Soviet Union. Real suffering offers a catalyst for which you will either grow and become spiritually strengthened, finding contentment, peace, patience, grace, and dignity, or you will break and become an animal husk of your former self, descending into bitterness and resentment, hatred, envy, and wrath. Frankl remembered a statement that Dostoevsky made, since he himself spent a lot of time in prison. Dostoevsky once said that he only has one fear, to be found unworthy of his suffering, And what he meant by that is that he might be found like an abused animal, full of rage and evil, hypothetic and ugly beast, good for nothing except to be finished off. Instead, suffering can refine you, make you even more dignified, even more virtuous. And this is what makes you worthy of your suffering. They beat you and they degrade you and they spit on you and they starve you and they work you to death. Why? Because they can't break you. And they're trying. But if you buckle, if you fold, if you give in, if you become enraged and you strike your fellow prisoner and you take their crumbs for yourself, like many people did, then they win. They show you to be the scum that they think that you are. But instead, Victor Frankl recalls, there were people who, despite the psychological and physical stress they were all suffering, went around the camp encouraging others and giving away their last piece of bread. Quote, they may have been few in number, but they offer sufficient proof that everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances. Fundamentally, therefore, any man can, even under such circumstances, decide what shall become of him mentally and spiritually, End quote. And that's what this book is about. This book is about how, regardless of your life situation, you may find meaning in a person, a career, or whatever. It doesn't matter, and that's good for you. But even if you broke your neck at 17 years old and are paralyzed from the neck down, you can say, I broke my neck. My neck did not break me. More on that story uh, next, next episode. <clears throat> so Victor describes the three psychological stages of a prisoner. The first is shock, You are so stunned by the reality that you face that you live with the naive hope that things will go well for you specifically. You assume that you will get the best work detachment. Perhaps you'll get a kind foreman. Your soup portion will have peas and not just watered down broth. Your family is out there somewhere and you have to get home to them. They're just waiting for you, safe and sound. Of course, some of this withers every time you are randomly struck by the butt of a rifle for yawning or beaten to the ground or for stopping to help a fellow who tripped while marching to your work site. The injustice and unreasonableness of getting beaten for something small hurt worse than the physical pain. In an all-too-human exchange, Frankel recalls getting slapped across the face for taking only a second to lean on his shovel. The foreman had just turned around and had assumed he was being lazy. The man barked at him. "'I'll teach you to work, you pig. I bet you never worked a day in your life. What were you, swine, a businessman?' Frankel said that he was a doctor. Ah, a doctor. I bet you got a lot of money out of people. Victor replied, as it happens, I did most of my work for no money at all, in clinics and for the poor. But that was too far. The foreman tackled the man and screamed in his face like a madman. Frankel writes that he did not remember what he shouted. After the foreman had moved on, Victor said to his fellow workers, a nurse at my hospital wouldn't even let that guy see the outpatient waiting room. They smiled, and it afforded him childlike relief. Frankel tells you that story because he wanted you to understand how insulting his pride and his profession actually hurt more than the physical beating. But I tell you that story because I want you to see just how human this interaction is. This is the equivalent to kindergartners on the playground. The bully beats up a kid, and then that kid makes fun of the bully to his friends to regain some confidence and self-esteem. Intense conditions make us more human, not less human. But as the insults and the hunger and the days drag on, the stage of shock and naive hope would eventually wear off. Camp life became the new normal. Frankel discusses interesting things which arises in camp. Firstly, politics and religion, which are shunned as taboo topics for everyday life, became the sole topics of riveting conversation amongst prisoners. Ideas pertaining to God, the meaning of life, the significance of suffering, the role of a proper government, all sorts of things were discussed freely and often. Those who weren't interested in religion at all became the most intrigued students. Those who were intellectual types in their former life could retreat into deep contemplation as a way to escape their sufferings. But obviously, open conversation was frequently impossible. Frankl recalls one harsh winter, where his work group marched for miles to dig up broken pipes in the frozen turf. The wind cut through their skin and chilled their bones. Officers demanded they march faster as men fell and stumbled through the dark in the early hours of the morning. Whoever fell was kicked in the ribs. As they walked, one man whispered to, to, to Victor Frankl, If only our wives could see us now. I hope they are better off than we are. This thought sent Frankl into an almost trance-like state. Both men walked silently, but they knew they were each thinking about their wives. Victor could imagine her with an uncanny acuteness, even carrying on full conversations in his imagination. I'll read, quote, "'Real or not, her look was more luminous than the sun which was beginning to rise. A thought transfixed me. For the first time in my life I saw the truth as it is set into song by so many poets, proclaimed as the final wisdom by so many thinkers.' the truth, that love is the ultimate and the highest goal to which man can aspire. Then I grasped the meaning of the greatest secret that human poetry and human thought and belief have to impart. The salvation of man is through love and in love. I understood how a man who has nothing left in this world may still know bliss, be it only for a brief moment in the contemplation of his beloved. For the first time in my life, I was able to understand the meaning of the words the angels are lost in perpetual contemplation of an infinite glory. End quote. Unknown to him, his pregnant wife was actually already dead in another camp. But Frankel says that even if he knew that, it wouldn't have mattered. To quote Song of Solomon in the Bible, Set me like a seal upon thy heart. Love is as strong as death. Now, I'd like to actually comment here on Frankel's thoughts, and I would like to expand his purview in a way that I think he would approve of. It sounds like he's expanding this notion of romantic love to to, to be a deeper kind of love, an agape love, a, a, a love that's capable of the salvation of man, he says. But I think it's clear that this love does not have to be romantic, and fundamentally it actually isn't. Of course, between husband and wife, in this case, it, it is romantic, but, but it doesn't have to be. This kind of profound love of a soul touching another soul, obviously it is shared often between a husband and a wife, but... It's something that we could hypothetically share with anyone and something that we are designed to share with God. God created us with the capacity to love one another and and love at all so that we might be lost in the perpetual contemplation of God as our lover. When God uses a metaphor to talk about the love he has for us and the love he wants us to have for him, he uses marriage as his metaphor. Christ is said to be the groom and we are said to be the bride. And it's so hard sometimes to separate this from the sexual imagery. But then again, God created sex as an expression of love and union, as a symbol to communicate the depth of love and intimacy that he wants to have with us. So anyway, as as I read that, I realized, man, it would suck to go through this if you didn't have a a beloved, if you didn't have like a, a wife to think about. But then it hit me. God wants to be our beloved. He wants us to be lost in a perpetual contemplation of an infinite glory. And to a large extent, I think this is what Viktor Frankl is getting at. And something that both Viktor Frankl and Alexander Solzhenitsyn, by the way, Solzhenitsyn is is not religious, but both of them said that in in government-sponsored prison camps where death and starvation are the norm, the people who had a relationship with God were always the ones who flourished and transcended their primitive environments and became closer to God in their behavior and in their hearts instead of being broken. And as we'll continue to see, Intense suffering pushes you to become more of yourself, whoever you are on the inside. And all suffering gives is the opportunity and the freedom to choose who you will become. Another coping mechanism which Frankl talks about besides the contemplation of loved ones was really interesting to me. Victor talks about this trance-like existence where your old life is played to you almost like a slideshow in the strangest moments. Frankl says that, His subconscious would at strange times bring up the most insipid and random memories, which would somehow become his most treasured possessions. Memories such as riding the bus and looking out the window on your way to work, or turning on the lights to your bedroom, or unlocking the front door to your apartment, or hearing your phone ring and then answering it. Little random things from your normal life could bring you to tears. Frankel doesn't comment too much about this, but I found it extremely fascinating That when everything is taken from you, the things you remember aren't the fun things that you did or the most enriching experiences, but the everyday life that you left behind. Another thing that Frankel says happens to the prisoner related to all of these things is that your inner life becomes far more intense. And under that, your sensitivity to beauty and art are magnified beyond belief. So much so that the sound of music or shared laughter could completely remove you from your circumstances, if only for a few seconds. Here's the quote Quote, As the inner life of a prisoner tended to become more intense, he also experienced the beauty of art and nature as never before. Under their influence, he sometimes even forgot his own frightful circumstances. If someone had seen our faces on the journey from Auschwitz to a Bavarian camp as we beheld the mountains of Salzburg with their summits glowing in the sunset through the little barred window in the prison carriage, he would never have believed that those were the faces of men who had given up all hope of life and liberty. Despite that fact, or, or maybe because of it, we were carried away by nature's beauty, which we had missed for so long, end quote. Frankel tells the story of a prisoner who once rushed into the hut to say, guys, guys, come out and look at this. Everyone stumbled out and were struck with awe and amazed silenced at the shades of steel blue and blood red over a living sky filled with clouds. After a whole minute's passed of unprovoked stillness, someone finally said, How beautiful the world could be. There was one night in Auschwitz where some warden or another had a celebration with music and such. The muffled sounds could be heard by the prisoners late that night. After hours of partying, everything fell quiet and dark. Out of nowhere, a violin could be heard. I'll read you the Quote, quote Suddenly there was a silence, and into that night... A violin sang a desperately sad tango, an unusual tune not spoiled by frequent playing. The violin wept, and a part of me wept with it, for on that day someone had a 24th birthday. That someone lay in another part of the Auschwitz camp, possibly only a few hundred or thousand yards away, and yet completely out of reach. That someone was my wife. Very soon I'm going to do a series on the Christian view of art and beauty. But until then, I merely want to point out the power of a mountainside or a sunset or a violin solo amidst this hell on earth. The capacity that beauty and art have to transform someone's experience of reality and and temporarily transcend someone's circumstances is so incredible that I really think, there is something deep and profound to be, to be said about that, and, and believe me, I have, I have a lot to say about it, and I really look forward to, to the series on, on a Christian perspective on art and beauty. I, I think I might do that next, just, just because. I mean, it doesn't really fit with the flow, but anyway, I had to bring that up. The last coping mechanism which Frankel offers is humor. He says that humor was another one of the soul's weapons in the fight for self-preservation it is well known that humor, more than anything else in the human makeup, can afford an aloofness and an ability to rise above any situation, even if only for a few seconds. You might think it obvious or preposterous, but a dark sense of humor developed in the camp and served as an invaluable tool to buttress the hopelessness of the situation. The second psychological stage of the prisoner is apathy. The first was shock and a naive hope, and the second is a complete emptying of emotions and disassociation from everything and everyone. As I alluded before, uh, I described all the coping mechanisms. Each insult, every beating, slowly drains your naivety until finally you are completely indifferent to your surroundings. You aren't bothered by the sewage of the latrine bucket which splashes on your face as a guard makes you carry it as fast as you can. You are numbed, to the fact that people around you are dying every day in horrific ways. You are numbed to the insults and the beatings to where you lose the capacity to feel things in relation to external stimuli, with the exception of profound beauty and love, as mentioned. Frankel tells the story of when he was put in charge of the sick because he said he was a doctor, and one year typhoid ripped through the camp and killed huge numbers of prisoners. The healthy began to predict with great accuracy who would die next and how many days a man had. Victor recalls comforting a man who he knew would die within hours. When he did, others would come around and strip him of his shoes, any cigarettes that he had, perhaps his shirt. And then came the hardest task of all, removing the corpse. With how starved everyone was, mounting the three steps to get out of the hut took the strength of your entire body. Frankel recalls the apathy of greedily drinking his watered-down soup while the recently dead, recently stripped man was drugged by his ankles outside the hut. His head made an unnatural thud as it was pulled up the steps. As he was drugged by the window, Victor watched and even made eye contact with the dead man, all without feeling a thing and taking another sip. Frankel says that if it were not for his professional interest to the extent of his emotionlessness, he wouldn't have even remembered this incident to write it down. The next interesting thing that Frankel writes about that I think is of the utmost importance is the short discussion of the psychological state of the guards, the trustees, and, of course, the prisoners. A trustee is a prisoner who volunteers to be a guard, a warden, or or a torturer. These were many, and they were the most brutal. Frankel notes that trustees would beat fellow prisoners more severely than any guard would, perhaps because it was very easy to lose your place as a trustee and be demoted back to regular old prisoner. Trustees would flaunt their status as a more protected class of prisoner and would often receive extra cigarettes or coupons which could be exchanged for extra ladles of soup or cigarettes. Some trustees became foremen, overseeing work groups or certain camp duties. Not all trustees were bad, though. Some used their position to actually make things easier on their prisoners when guards weren't looking. But even among the prison guards, there were many who were kind. Even though the senior camp warden, a prisoner himself, mercilessly beat any prisoner at the slightest provocation, the camp commander never laid a hand on anyone. Frankel also recalls a kind officer who would routinely talk to Frankel about his marital troubles while they marched to the worksite, asking Victor for his advice and counsel. The officer saved Frankel's life on many occasions, even vouching for him to another officer who hated Frankel, and was going to have him gassed. It should go without saying that, among the guards, there were some who were sadists in the pure clinical sense of the term. Sometimes, after a few hours of work during the winter, prisoners would be allowed to warm themselves with a stove by burning twigs and scraps of wood. Many of the camp guards found great pleasure in not only forbidding that prisoners enjoy these stoves, but also going around smashing the stove to the ground to dump the fire into the snow. Whenever the SS needed an especially severe group of men for an assignment, there was always men ready to volunteer. But the majority of the guards had merely been dulled to their jobs. They were not exceptionally cruel, nor kind, similar to the men in Reserve Police Battalion 101, as we discussed last episode. There were saints and there were sinners, but most just did nothing. They kept their heads down, they did their jobs, and nothing more. Frankel admits, however, that there were a handful of prison guards who did make sacrifices on behalf of the prisoners. After de was liberated by the United States forces, the camp commander was so well-liked by the prisoners that they hid the German from the Allied troops, demanding to speak to a commander. When the American commanding officer finally came, the prisoners negotiated with him, ensuring that the German leader would not be harmed. It came out years later that this German had even paid a considerable sum of money from his own pocket for expensive medicines for the prisoners during the typhoid outbreak years prior. Frankl finally says this about the psychology of the camp. Listen to this. It is apparent that the mere knowledge that a man was either a camp guard or a prisoner tells us almost nothing. Human kindness can be found in all groups, even those which, as a whole, it would be very easy to condemn. The boundaries between groups overlapped, and we must not try to simplify matters by saying that these men were angels and those were devils. Certainly, it was a considerable achievement for a guard or foreman to be kind to the prisoners in spite of all the camp's influences, and, on the other hand, the baseness of a prisoner who treated his own companions badly was exceptionally contemptible. Obviously, the prisoners found the lack of character in such men especially upsetting, while they were profoundly moved by the smallest kindness received from any of the guards, I remember how one day a foreman secretly gave me a piece of bread which I knew he must have saved from his breakfast ration. It was far more than the small piece of bread which moved me to tears at that time. It was the human something which this man also gave me, the word and the look which accompanied the gift. Life in a concentration camp tore open the human soul and exposed its depths. Is it surprising that in those depths we again found only human qualities, which in their very nature were a mixture of good and evil? The rift dividing good from evil, which goes through all human beings, reaches into the lowest depths and becomes apparent even on the bottom of the abyss, which is laid open by the concentration camp." This is such an important truth today. I think it bears emphasis, If a survivor of the Holocaust can say not all Nazi guards are bad guys and not all prisoners are good guys, then how much more should we be cautious before painting with a wide brush when we discuss our own politics? It sickens me when people talk about police brutality or black culture or whatever if they speak as though everyone in a certain group are evil and everyone in another group is a victim. I want to rescue this thought from politics and say that everywhere, always, at all times, when the human soul is exposed to the depths, we find a rift dividing good and evil. And even in a concentration camp, the lines between good and evil people are blurry. The third and final psychological stage of the prisoner is the effects of liberation. Despite the horrors suffered by those confined in the concentration camp, there were those who survived to see American tanks roll through the electric chain fences. Mere days before, SS officers had loaded as many prisoners into trucks as they could, presumably to move them farther from the forefront, only to be found burned alive in those trucks less than a mile away from the camp. When the prisoners were released by American and Allied soldiers, what they discovered was that being suddenly freed from psychological pressure could be just as damaging as being freed from physical pressure. Prisoners of a more simple disposition were unable to return to their former state, having once been reduced to a primitive and near-animal-like existence. Others faced the dual spiritual deformity of bitterness and disillusionment. First to bitterness. Many prisoners swore that they would exact revenge, not necessarily on the Germans, but on life. They were angry that existence could bring so much pain, and now that the tables were turned, they were ready to dish out a fraction of what had been done to them. Many felt like they had the right to steal, cheat, hit, or even kill to get whatever they wanted now that they were free. Their justification was, all that we've been through, and I'm not allowed to eat oats from this guy's barn, or eat dinner from this man's table even though he didn't invite me, or you name it, basically. (laughs) And now I'm supposed to go back to living just like everyone else? Frankel notes that It was very challenging to get someone to see that just because they had been deeply wronged that they were not entitled to wrong others. The second deformity is disillusionment. Many people went home after all those years of dreaming about their hometowns, about their neighbors, about their workplaces, only to discover that the world had moved on. Former prisoners would often find that their homes had been sold to other families, their belongings given away to others. Nobody knew who they were or cared that they were back. Their families had been exterminated and their neighbors shrugged. For them, it had been years. They would often hear, we didn't know about the camps, or, you know, we've we've suffered too. Frankel writes that the superficiality and indifference of the average person would stir you to such levels of disgust that you would feel like crawling into a hole and never seeing or hearing from a human being again the worst realization was that after all they had been through, fate had even more suffering in store for them, this time in the disillusionment of the dreams which they had cherished and brought them through the concentration camps to begin with. In some cases, the loneliness and the emptiness of freedom brought more intense suffering than the camaraderie and stability of camp life. For the men who placed his faith in God, they did not let camp life destroy their inner self, and it was easier for them to face the bitterness and the disillusionment of liberation. Victor Frankl ends part one with this incredible quote. quote, The crowning experience of all for the homecoming man is the wonderful feeling that after all he has suffered, there is nothing he need fear anymore, except his God, end quote. Now that we have finished our survey of part one, experiences in a concentration camp, I believe that we are well equipped to understand part two, which is a deeper analysis of Frankel's thoughts on mental health, depression, addiction, suicide, its causes and its cures, as well as what we can do to find meaning in life. The two parts of this book go hand in hand, with part one lending credibility to part two, and part two instilling significance and drawing power from part one. What Frankl challenges head-on is this Freudian notion that human beings are essentially motivated by pleasure, and the Adlerian notion that human beings are primarily motivated by power or status. Instead, Frankl maintains that humans are essentially motivated by the will to meaning and purpose. He says that contrary to Freud and Adler, man's ability to live and die for his ideals and values proves that they are not merely defense mechanisms or reaction formations. Instead, they are a core to who we are, and they orient all of our behavior and outlook throughout life. Viktor Frankl draws from his experience in the concentration camps to affirm that it is possible to orient your life meaningfully, to take responsibility for the tasks that life sets out for you, and to find dignity and strength amidst unspeakable hardship. In many ways, Part 2 is more relevant to us today than the anecdotes from Part 1, so I hope you'll join me next time. Thank you for listening to the Well-Read Christian Podcast. Suffering had become a task on which we did not want to turn our backs. We had realized its hidden opportunities for achievement, the opportunities which caused the poet Rilke to write, We veil a... How much suffering there is to get through.